1: Hello and welcome to episode 175 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you for joining me today and I hope that you and your family are doing well in these somewhat trying times. Today's story is from South Wales and has been a difficult story to put together about crime and blame. Who is really to blame for certain actions and how is our view of this affected by all sorts of factors? This week's show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Okay, so we all know how a VPN protects your privacy and security online, right? But I didn't know this until recently, and it's taken my TV watching game to the next level. You can use a VPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. Over the weekend, I used ExpressVPN to binge Fresh Prince of Bel-Air on Australia Netflix. It was so simple. I just fired up the ExpressVPN app, changed my location to Australia, refresh Netflix, and that's it. You see, ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries. So just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. Love anime? Use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service, Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I use ExpressVPN to watch shows is because it's ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD, no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices, phone, media consoles, smart TV and more so you can watch what you want on the go or on the big screen, wherever you are. If you visit my special link right now, expressvpn.com slash uktc, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want and protect yourself at expressvpn.com uktc. Before we begin, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new members of this exclusive club, that's Izzy Woodford-Lim, Catherine Spencer-Cook and David Sullivan. Thank you so much for your support, which is much, much appreciated. Let's take a quick look at the music we were listening to at the time of today's events. Top of the UK charts was 19 by Paul Hardcastle, remember that? And Rory Bremner's cricket version. In the US, Madonna was at number one with Crazy For You, her first hit ballad. And in Australia, the top-selling album this year was the one my friend's dad's always liked growing up, dire straits with brothers in arms. In the news this month, Michael Jordan was named NBA Rookie of the Year. US sailor Michael L. Walker was arrested for spying for the USSR. The James Bond film View to a Kill, the 14th in the series, and the last star in the legend that was Roger Moore, premiered in San Francisco. A cyclone ravaged Bangladesh, killing over 11,000 people. And in the UK, 56 people died at an awful fire at Bradford City's grounds. Look out for more on that in a future podcast. Did you get the month and the year? May 1985. Today's story comes from Merthyr Tydvil, Tidville, a town in South Wales around 23 miles north of Cardiff. Fashion designer and retailer Laura Ashley is from Merthyr. And Keir Hardy was one of the first two Labour MPs to be returned to Parliament, representing the Merthyr-Tidville constituency. Those of you old enough to remember it will never forget the miners' strike in 1984-1985. And there'll be many others of you listening of all ages who've been told by friends and family of how this period changed so much for so many. Let me be absolutely clear that today isn't about the politics of the dispute, except to set context, but to tell some of the stories of those involved. The miners' strike of 1984-1985 was almost certainly the most bitter industrial dispute Britain has ever seen. For over a year, pit communities suffered terrible hardships, as they desperately fought to retain their local collieries, which for many of those involved was the only source of employment. It was on the 6th of March 1984 that the strike began, when the National Coal Board announced its plans to reduce capacity and close 20 pits with the loss of over 20,000 jobs. On the 12th of March 1984, Arthur Scargill, President of the National Union of Mineworkers, or NUM, reacted by calling a national strike in defiance of the closures. At its height, 140,000 miners were out on strike, costing around £26 working days, the most lost since the general strike of 1926. It's for another podcast to talk about how fundamental this dispute was to the trade union movement, the legacy of Margaret Thatcher, and whether the action taken by her government was correct. And we shouldn't of course ignore the controversial role played by the press and the allegations of police brutality in policing the strike. What is beyond dispute is the long-lasting devastating effects on mining communities and individual families. These are still felt very strongly today. The local disputes between these so-called scabs, miners who broke the strike and returned to work, and others who were striking, had a huge effect on people who were close colleagues just before the strike. Striking miners manned the picket lines along with so-called flying pickets that is miners from other pits, who came in to support their colleagues. And the miners breaking the strike and going to work often faced a torrid time crossing the picket lines. This led to tension and violence amongst previous colleagues. And one of the worst examples was from Airedale in Castleford, where most miners were on strike and those working felt the full fury of their colleagues. One miner who had continued working, Michael Fletcher, savagely beaten in November 1984 when a gang burst into his house with baseball bats and brutally attacked him for over five minutes. His terrified children and pregnant wife were in the house and had to listen to the attack as they hid upstairs. His injuries included a broken shoulder blade, dislocated elbow and two broken ribs. This case is one of those that did make it to court and two of his colleagues were convicted of causing Grievous bodily harm, and four others were acquitted of riot and assault. Almost all the pits in Wales supported the strike, and the Merthyr Tydfil area had a reputation for being amongst the most militant in the country. The miners and also the local population were almost entirely solidly behind the miners. 35 year old David Wilkie lived in nearby Pontypridd with his fiancee Janice Reed and their two year old daughter. David also had a 12-year-old son and 5-year-old daughter from a previous relationship with Connie. And when we join our story in March 1984, his fiancée Janice was pregnant with their second child. The baby was due in around two months. David worked as a taxi driver, driving his Ford Cortina for city centre cars based in Cardiff. One of his roles was taking non-striking miners to work. He wasn't so concerned about the picket lines, as such a large percentage of miners in Murtha were on strike, so there weren't many picket lines to worry him. But nonetheless, he was fully aware that his decision to provide transport to miners breaking the strike could potentially make him a target. It was hard for him to ignore this, as when he picked up the working miners, he was accompanied on the journey by two police cars and a motorcycle outrider. On the 30th of March 1984, David left his house to make two early morning pickups of miners based at the Murtha Tidville pit. David first made his way the short distance to Rimney, where he picked up miner David Williams, and at 5.20am that morning was then heading to pick up the second fare. He had just turned on the A465 road north of Rimney at the Rimney Road roundabout when from nowhere on the empty road, The windscreen suddenly shattered with a tremendous bang and the car veered off onto the embankment where it rolled to a stop. As the first people scrambled to the car to help, David Williams emerged shaken but unhurt. But tragically, it was clear that driver David Wilkie was dead, losing his life at just 35 years old in his taxi. Someone, or some people, had thrown a £46 concrete block and a concrete post weighing £65 from a bridge 27 feet above the head of the valley's road, which had smashed straight through his windscreen. This had pinned David to his seat, causing catastrophic injuries to both his head and chest. David's fiancé, expecting a child within two months, was rushed to hospital on hearing the news. His mum, who also suffered from heart trouble, was detained in hospital when she heard about her son's death. Across the UK, David's death was major news headlining the bulletins. The Chief Constable of South Wales, David East, later told a press conference at Merthyr police station, this is not industrial action, this is not picketing, this is murder. Whoever threw those things down must have known the likely consequences. He said that this wasn't the first time this had happened, and just in September, The assistant chief constable had warned that someone would be killed if pickets continued throwing pieces of concrete from motorway bridges, which at the time had been targeting convoys of lorries, taking coal to the nearby steelworks. The style of attack today is similar, David East added, but with any inquiry you must of course keep an open mind. He confirmed that 28 policemen had been injured in clashes involving hundreds of police and pickets at the colliery, where just two men had been continuing to work for the previous two weeks. And later that day, two local striking miners were charged with David's murder. The two men were Reginald Dean Hancock, aged 21, of Rimney, and Russell Shankland, 20, of Rimney. Merthyr police said they would appear the following morning before a specially convened magistrates' court, and they confirmed that a third person was still helping the police with their inquiries. Of course, due to the ongoing strike, the reaction to David's death came from far and wide, including from the very top. Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher said, My reaction is one of anger at what this has done to the family of a person only doing his duty, and taking someone to work who wanted to go to work. Kim Howells, later to serve in a Labour government, spoke for the South Wales National Union of Mine Workers blaming the attack on the attempts to persuade miners to return to work. And Arthur Scargill said he had been deeply shocked by the tragedy. That evening, Labour leader Neil Kinnock, from South Wales himself, was due to speak at an event in Stoke-on-Trent alongside Arthur Scargill. Kinnock endured a tough time that evening. He opened by saying, We meet here tonight in the shadow of an outrage, but it was clear that this wasn't the view held by all at the venue and he was heckled continuously, with some making it clear that in their view, he had betrayed the NUM for not supporting the striking Miners. Kinnock stuck to his position and denounced the lack of a ballot for the strike and the violence inflicted against those breaking the strike. There are thousands of articles about Neil Kinnock and other politicians and the roles they took in the Miners strike, but it's clear that the position of Kinnock certainly did split opinion even on the left. There was an appeal for money to support David's family and donations were received from far and wide, including philanthropist Paul Getty. David's funeral was packed and led by the Bishop of Landaff, who used this platform to call for a solution to the strike. On either side of David's death there was more tragedy for those involved with the miners' strike. On the 15th of March 1984, just four days into the strike, 24-year-old David Gareth Jones from Wakefield, a flying picket who worked at Acton Hall Pit in Yorkshire, had joined a 100 fellow Yorkshire miners to support miners at Ollerton Colliery in Nottingham, to man the picket line after miners at Ollerton had voted to return to work. It was a tense scene as many of the men who had decided to work turning away when they saw their colleagues on the picket line. In his book, Reference in the Show Notes, Kevin Morley quotes one miner at the scene, saying There were women effing at the Yorkshire miners to go home. The National Front lads were there with their badges on. Ollerton skinheads were there, plus Ollerton lads wanting to go to work. They started chucking bottles, pint pots, everything. Some drunk people also turned up from a local pub and they started scratching the cars of the flying pickets from Yorkshire. The Yorkshire men ran towards the cars as the barrage of objects rained down on them. And in this confusing scene, David Jones was hit by a brick on the neck and went to the floor. He was taken to hospital but didn't ever recover and he died at 11 minutes past midnight on Thursday the 15th of March 1984. His funeral on March the 23rd was attended by 5,000 miners from all over the country. The post-mortem ruled that the brick did not cause his death and that it was more likely to have been caused by being pressed against the pit gates earlier in the day. As you can imagine, the official investigation into his death was looked on with utter disdain by many, and the conclusion widely disputed. The police took 270 statements in both Nottinghamshire and Yorkshire as evidence at the inquest into the fatality. J.E. Nightingale said, David Jones' friends who'd been with him throughout the evening were never called. The end result was that the police appeared to have found little out and the person who may have thrown a brick was never brought forward. An open verdict was given and nobody was ever convicted in relation to his death. Nightingale also quotes a friend of David Jones explaining the effect that David's death had on him, who said, He lived across the backs from me. Everything that I'd done in my life up until then, I'd done with him. Boozing, shagging, fighting, the pit. I knew his wife, his two kids, everything. But after that it totally changed. A lot of us knew him. We weren't exactly angels, but that made us worse. We were determined then that we would never miss a day picketing, and we didn't. I think I missed about six days in the whole year. But that hardened a lot of people. Two days after this, Ian Tarran, a 25-year-old miner from Peterlee County Durham, killed himself, allegedly after being taunted for being a scab after breaking the strike. And another strike breaker took his own life in June, with James Clay killing himself, allegedly after his 12-year-old daughter was threatened. And two South Wales miners also lost their lives around the same time, when they died in a car accident on their way to the picket line. And there was another tragedy three months later, 55-year-old Joe Green was on a picket line at Ferrybridge Power Station in Yorkshire when he was hit and killed by a lorry. Joe had been one of the original Fifeshire miners who'd migrated to Kellingley in 1965. Joe had suffered a nasty accident three years earlier which had led to his retirement on grounds of ill Health. But each day, although not as mobile as he once was, he would walk to the gates at Ferrybridge with sandwiches and beer to keep the morale up for his old colleagues on the picket line. It was a sunny June day when he approached a lorry leaving the power station, but Joe was struck by the speeding lorry and didn't survive his injuries. Once more, nobody was ever held accountable for Joe's death. And in November 1984, two brothers, 15-year-old Paul and 14-year-old Darren Holmes, were killed in Yorkshire, picking coal to help the family heat the house during that winter period. Trevor Holmes, Paul and Darren's dad, said One of their mates came to the house and said Darren and Paul are buried. I thought they were joking, but I ran to the site of my slippers. There he joined the efforts to free the trap boys and said There were lots of people there digging, including some of the miners who were picketing whilst they were on strike. Trevor joined the efforts to free the trap boys and said There were lots of people there digging, including some of the miners who were picketing whilst they were on strike. Tragically, Darren died at the scene, and Paul died on the way to hospital. And another 14-year-old boy, Paul Warmersley from Yorkshire, and a miner named Frederick Taylor, died in very similar circumstances during this period. In fact, during the whole strike, the NUM estimated that 11 people died, 7,000 were injured, 11,000 miners arrested, and 1,000 sacked for their role in the dispute. Before the trial of the men accused of killing David Wilkie began, the miners' strike was over. By January 1985, the strike was beginning to fall apart as miners facing increasing financial hardship began to return to work in larger numbers. And on the 3rd of March 1985, a year from the start of the strike, the NUM's national executive voted 98-91 in favour of an organised return to work. The miners returned to work, defeated, but with their heads held high as they defiantly walked behind colliery bands and banners and alongside the women and children who provided them with such vital and high-profile support during this most bitter of disputes. The trial of the three men accused of murdering David Wilkie took place at Cardiff Crown Court and lasted eight days. At the conclusion, the two 21-year-olds Dean Hancock and Russell Shankland were both found guilty of a murder by the jury with a ten to two majority verdict. There was clear shock and disbelief in the public gallery, and relatives sobbed and screamed as the verdict was delivered. Shanklin stood with his head bowed. His girlfriend Carol Hopkins fainted, collapsed, and was carried out from the courtroom by officials. Hancock buried his head in his hands and gasped, oh my God, as he burst into tears. Passing sentence, the judge, Mr. Justice Michael Madd acknowledged a miners' strike had endangered a climate of violence that had led to the killing of David Wilkie. But he concluded, You perform the ultimate act of violence, and for it, you will go to prison for life. After the verdicts, Shanklin's lawyer, John Prosser QC, said that his clients were victims in a nation at war. Referring to strike leaders like Arthur Scargill, Head of the National Union of Miners, he said, In that war, there were generals and they stood outside the law and they left Russell Shankland outside the law. A third defendant, Anthony Williams, who was on the bridge with the two men, was cleared of all charges after it was decided that he'd been actively trying to discourage the other two from dropping the concrete missiles. As he left the court, he told journalists, It was an accident. Those two boys wouldn't hurt anyone. They are not those sort of boys. The life sentences were met with a sense of disbelief across the local community. The pervading view was that David's death was not a deliberate act of murder, and 700 miners at Merthyr Vale walked out on hearing the news in a show of solidarity with their now jailed colleagues. We must all of course make up our own minds about the attitudes of some of the other major players in this story at the time, But maybe we can argue that they made their comments in a time of stress. But I still find some of them very puzzling. Bill King was the Secretary of the National Union of Mine Workers for Murphy Vale. He blamed David Williams for the taxi driver's death. David Williams should have David Wilkie's death on his conscience for the rest of his life. No one at the pit will ever speak to him. We will never forget what he did, the union official said after the verdicts. A high-profile local councillor, Ray Davis, and the Rimley Support Group also campaigned against the murder convictions. He later said, They didn't mean to kill anyone. They wanted to frighten the taxi driver so he would turn back. I got put in the cells for saying there were not murderers outside the court in Cardiff. And after their convictions, the Labour Herald paper announced a campaign by politician Tony Benn for amnesty for, I quote, Everyone fined and imprisoned, or otherwise penalised for their actions during the miners' 12-month strike. On appeal, the two men saw their convictions reduced to manslaughter, and their life sentences were replaced with eight-year prison terms, of which they would serve just over half. Hancock and Shankland were released on the 30th of November 1989, which was, coincidentally, the fifth anniversary of the death of David Wilkie. Speaking 20 years after David's death to the South Wales Echo newspaper, His wife, Connie, told how losing him affected her and her family, I quote. Mrs Phillips last saw her childhood sweetheart just hours before he died, when they met to discuss the children's Christmas presents. But despite being his common-law wife for 14 years, when Mr Wilkie died, Connie and her two children lost everything, including their home. At the time of his death, he was in a relationship with another woman. David's death was a great loss to us all, He was a good father and a good provider, and before he died, I didn't know what it was like to pay a bill, Mrs Phillips said. The house was part of his estate, so because we weren't married, I lost that, and we had to move into council accommodation on top of everything else. I was left to bring up his children on my own, and believe me, it wasn't easy. The tragedy of David's death meant he missed his children growing up, and the birth of his first grandson, Jason's child Dion." But Connie said the family, including her daughter Claire, who now lives nearby with her husband, have had to find a way to move on. Time heals a lot, doesn't it? And how can you go on feeling bitter towards people, she said. Seeing all the programmes and documentaries about the strike does open old wounds for us, and that is hard. But David's death is a part of history, and even when Dion grows up, I no people will still remember it, it never goes away. So what do you make of what you've heard today? David Wilkie was just 35 when he left a fiancé, ex-wife and four children behind. And for what? In reality, just doing his legal, law-abiding job. Whatever you may feel about the job he was doing. And his passenger and the police escort and their families will all have been affected forever by what they saw on that day almost 35 years ago. And I wonder about the two men who went to jail for killing him. How do they feel now, assuming they're still alive, when they reflect on the events of the day? Do they still have regrets? And would they advise their children or grandchildren to act in the same way? I wonder. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. To discuss this story or any aspect of UK true crime, please head to the UK True Crime Facebook group and join almost 23,000 of us. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime, where you'll find almost 40 bonus episodes and loads of other exclusive content, all for less than the price of a coronavirus mask a month. You know it makes sense. So head to patreon.com slash crime. So that's all for me for this week. So until we speak again, I'm off to spend another couple of hours staring at the championship table. I pondered last week how the mighty Leeds could screw up promotion from the position they were in. I think I now know the answer. Anyway, on that bombshell, have a great week. Please do take it easy, stay safe, and most of all, stay classy. Cheerio.